This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 25. From Cairo to Hickman. The scenery from St. Louis to Cairo, two hundred miles, is varied and beautiful. The hills were clothed in the fresh foliage of spring now, and were a gracious and worthy setting for the broad river flowing between. Our trip began auspiciously with a perfect day, as to breeze and sunshine, and our boat threw the miles out behind her with satisfactory despatch. We found a railway intruding at Chester, Illinois. Chester has also a penitentiary now, and is otherwise marching on. At Grand Tower, too, there was a railway, and another at Cape Girardeau. The former town gets its name from a huge squat pillar of rock, which stands up out of the water on the Missouri side of the river, a piece of nature's fanciful handiwork, and is one of the most picturesque features of the scenery of that region. For nearer or remote neighbors the tower has the devil's bake-oven, so called, perhaps, because it does not powerfully resemble anybody else's bake-oven, and the devil's tea-table. This latter, a great smooth-surfaced mass of rock, with diminishing wine-glass stem, perched some fifty or sixty feet above the river, beside a beflowered and garlanded precipice, and sufficiently like a tea-table to answer for anybody, devil or Christian. Away down the river we have the devil's elbow and the devil's race-course, and lots of other property of his, which I cannot now call to mind. The town of Grand Tower was evidently a busier place than it had been in old times, but it seemed to need some repairs here and there, and a new coat of whitewash all over. Still, it was pleasant to me to see the old coat once more. Uncle Mumford, our second officer, said the place had been suffering from high water, and consequently was not looking its best now, but he said it was not strange that it didn't waste whitewash on itself for more lime was made there, and of a better quality than anywhere in the West, and added, on a dairy farm you never can get any milk for your coffee, nor any sugar for it on a sugar plantation, and it is against sense to go to a lime town to hunt for whitewash. In my own experience I knew the first two items to be true, and also that people who sell candy don't care for candy. Therefore there was plausibility in Uncle Mumford's final observation that, people who make lime run more to religion than whitewash. Uncle Mumford said, further, that Grand Tower was a great coaling center, and a prospering place. Cape Girardeau is situated on a hillside, and makes a handsome appearance. There is a great Jesuit school for boys at the foot of the town by the river. Uncle Mumford said it had as high a reputation for thoroughness as any similar institution in Missouri. There was another college higher up on an airy summit, a bright new edifice, picturesquely and peculiarly towered and pinnacled, a sort of gigantic caster, with the cruets all complete. Uncle Mumford said that Cape Girardeau was the Athens of Missouri, and contained several colleges besides those already mentioned, and all of them on a religious basis of one kind or another. He directed my attention to what he called the strong and pervasive religious look of the town but I could not see that it looked more religious than the other hill-towns with the same slope and built of the same kind of bricks. Partialities often make people see more than really exists. 
Uncle Mumford has been thirty years a mate on the river. He is a man of practical sense and a level head. Has observed, has had much experience of one sort and another, has opinions, has also just a perceptible dash of poetry in his composition, an easy gift of speech, a thick growl in his voice, and an oath or two where he can get at them when the exigencies of his office require a spiritual lift. He is a mate of the blessed old-time kind, and goes gravely damning around when there is work to the fore, in a way to mellow the ex-steamboatman's heart with sweet soft longings for the vanished days that shall come no more. "'Get up there, you! Going to be all day? Why don't you say you was petrified in your hind legs before you shipped?' He is a steady man with his crew kind and just, but firm, so they like him, and stay with him. He is still in the slouchy garb of the old generation of mates, but next trip the anchor line will have him in uniform—a natty blue naval uniform, with brass buttons, along with all the officers of the line, and then he will be a totally different style of scenery from what he is now. Uniforms on the Mississippi! It beats all the other changes put together for surprise. Still, there is another surprise, that it was not made fifty years ago. It is so manifestly sensible that it might have been thought of earlier, one would suppose. During fifty years out there the innocent passenger in need of help and information has been mistaking the mate for the cook and the captain for the barber, and being roughly entertained for it, too. But his troubles are ended now, and the greatly improved aspect of the boat's staff is another advantage achieved by the dress reform period. Steered down the bend below Cape Girardeau. They used to call it Steersman's Bend. Plain sailing and plenty of water in it always, about the only place in the upper river that a new cub was allowed to take a boat through in low water. Thebes, at the head of the Grand Chain, and Commerce at the foot of it, were towns easily rememberable as they had not undergone conspicuous alteration. Nor the chain, either, in the nature of things, for it is a chain of sunken rocks, admirably arranged to capture and kill steamboats on bad nights. A good many steamboat corpses lie buried there, out of sight. Among the rest my first friend, the Paul Jones. She knocked her bottom out and went down like a pot, so the historian told me, Uncle Mumford. He said she had a gray mare aboard, and a preacher. To me, this sufficiently accounted for the disaster, as it did, of course, to Mumford, who added, But there are many ignorant people who would scoff at such a matter, and call it superstition. But you will always notice that there are people who have never traveled with a gray mare and a preacher. I went down the river once in such company. We grounded at Bloody Island. We grounded at Hanging Dog. We grounded just below this same commerce. We jolted Beaver Dam Rock. We hit one of the worst breaks in the graveyard behind Goose Island. We had a roustabout killed in a fight. We burnt a boiler, broke a shaft, collapsed a flue, and went into Cairo with nine feet of water in the hold. May have been more, may have been less. I remember it as if it were yesterday. The men lost their heads with terror. They painted the mare blue in sight of town and threw the preacher overboard, or we should not have arrived at all. The preacher was fished out and saved. He acknowledged himself that he had been to blame. I remember it all, as if it were yesterday. That this combination of preacher and gray mare should breed calamity seems strange, and at first glance unbelievable. 
but the fact is fortified by so much unassailable proof that to doubt is to dishonor reason. I myself remember a case where a captain was warned by numerous friends against taking a gray mare and a preacher with him, but persisted in his purpose, in spite of all that could be said, and the same day—it may have been the next, and some say it was, though I think it was the same day—he got drunk and fell down the hatchway, and was borne to his home a corpse. This is literally true. No vestige of Hat Island is left now. Every shred of it is washed away. I do not even remember what part of the river it used to be in, except that it was between St. Louis and Cairo somewhere. It was a bad region, all around and about Hat Island in early days. A farmer who lived on the Illinois shore there said that twenty-nine steamboats had left their bones strung along within sight from his house. Between St. Louis and Cairo the steamboat wrecks average one to the mile. Two hundred wrecks altogether. I could recognize big changes from commerce down. Beaver Dam Rock was out in the middle of the river now, and throwing a prodigious break. It used to be close to the shore, and boats went down outside of it. A big island that used to be away out in mid-river has retired to the Missouri shore, and boats do not go near it any more. The island, called Jacket Pattern, is whittled down to a wedge now, and is booked for early destruction. Goose Island is all gone, but a little dab the size of a steamboat. The perilous graveyard, among whose numberless wrecks we used to pick our way so slowly and gingerly, is far away from the channel now, and a terror to nobody. One of the islands, formerly called the Two Sisters, is gone entirely. The other, which used to lie close to the Illinois shore, is now on the Missouri side, a mile away. It is joined solidly to the shore, and it takes a sharp eye to see where the seam is, but it is Illinois ground yet, and the people who live on it have to ferry themselves over, and work the Illinois roads, and pay Illinois taxes. Singular state of things. Near the mouth of the river several islands were missing, washed away. Cairo was still there, easily visible across the long, flat point upon whose further verge it stands, but we had to steam a long way around to get to it. Night fell as we were going out of the upper river and meeting the floods of the Ohio. We dashed along without anxiety, for the hidden rock which used to lie right in the way has moved upstream a long distance out of the channel. Or rather, about one county has gone into the river from the Missouri point, and the Cairo point has made down and added to its long tongue of territory correspondingly. The Mississippi is a just and equitable river. It never tumbles one man's farm overboard without building a new farm just like it for that man's neighbor. This keeps down hard feelings. Going into Cairo, we came near killing a steamboat which paid no attention to our whistle and then tried to cross our bows. By doing some strong backing we saved him, which was a great loss, for he would have made good literature. Cairo is a brisk town now, and is substantially built, and has a city look about it, which is in noticeable contrast to its former estate, as per Mr. Dickens' portrait of it. However, it was already building with bricks when I had seen it last, which was when Colonel, now General Grant, was drilling his first command there. Uncle Mumford says the libraries and Sunday schools have done a good work in Cairo, as well as the brick masons. Cairo has a heavy railroad and river trade, and her situation at the junction of the two great rivers is so advantageous 
that she cannot well help prospering. When I turned out in the morning, we had passed Columbus, Kentucky, and were approaching Hickman, a pretty town perched on a handsome hill. Hickman is in a rich tobacco region, and formerly enjoyed a great and lucrative trade in that staple, collecting it there in her warehouses from a large area of country, and shipping it by boat. But Uncle Mumford says she built a railway to facilitate this commerce a little more, and he thinks it facilitated it the wrong way, took the bulk of the trade out of her hands by collaring it along the line without gathering it at her doors. End of chapter 25